Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes, we, we are big social security partisans and I'd love to talk about it in depth. So get ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm a big partisan social security advocate myself. <laughs> we could be one step closer to better Social Security after lawmakers unveiled what they're calling Social Security 2100. We are hostile. We're hostile opponents of elderly poverty. Exactly. It's a very, very controversial position, apparently. Chairman of the Social Security Subcommittee, Connecticut Congressman John Larson says that's why he's introduced the Social Security 2100 Act to increase payments to older Americans. So uh, I'm joined here by two Johns, Congressman John Larson, who represents uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and areas around that. Is that is that about does that about accurately describe your district? That is, it's Hartford and the 27 towns uh, around it. And also joined by John Schwartz, my colleague at the Intercept, and we're talking about uh, Social Security. I wanted to start with a story from. Uh, that, that I actually wrote about with Arthur Delaney about, about ten years ago in a in an article in back in the Huffington Post, and he had dug out of the Historical Society of Washington's archives this this fascinating but very revealing story about the way that elderly poverty existed pre Social Security, and so this it starts in the winter of kind of eighteen ninety six eighteen ninety seven and. An employee of a charity called Associated Charities was walking through Washington, and he came across an elderly black woman uh, that is only she's only known as Aunt Winnie in in the archives. And she told she he writes in his report she quote you know could not give street and number, but could fotch the agent to her place. Old age with a heavy load on top and a strong wind blowing made the walk a trying one. At last, the eight by ten cabin was reached. In it was a stove in many pieces held together with wire, a bedstead with rags for mattress and rags for covering. From the leaky roof, the floor was wet through and through. But the story doesn't stop there. So it talks about how her only income was as a washerwoman. She would make 50 cents every two weeks uh, taking in laundry. And then she raised a garden in the summertime. But in the winter, it says she, quote, suffered for food and fuel. Uh, her children had all been sold away to slavery, even though this is the 1890s. She was born into slavery. Wow. And so she didn't have family to help her out, but a nearby niece. There was a nearby niece, but she was too poor to offer much support. Neighbors helped her get through, and a, quote, colored, friendly visitor was found to carry broth and other comforts to her, unquote. So this is this is how she survived. And so the agent then writes, in the fall of nineteen, fall of eighteen ninety eight, agent asked her to go into the almshouse, which is a, another name for a poorhouse, but she would not consent. During the storm of February ninety nine, she was kept from perishing with a great effort. Every visit, and they were many, had to be made through snow up to the waist. It was during these visits that the promise was made that before another winter she would take refuge in an almshouse. But then, when the spring came, Aunt Winnie backed off, and she refused to go to the poorhouse. So the social worker at that point started playing hardball. 
He said, quote, it would be hard to say which the agent or the applicant suffered the more because through all this distress had sprung up a loving confidence and perfect trust that seemed cruel to deceive. Attention and assistance were withdrawn gradually, unquote. And so, you know, effectively, he, he's further immiserating her to try to talk her into going to this poorhouse. And finally, in July of, uh, in July of 1899, she, she agrees and she says that she'll sell her cabin and go into a poorhouse. Uh, nobody would buy the poorhouse, so the social worker suggested that she tear it down and just sell it for kindling it. And it says at 2 p.m. on August 23rd, 1899, the social worker showed up in a wagon. Quote, she was sitting on her trunk without a stick of the cabin to be seen. Without a murmur, she dropped a curtsy to the bare spot where once stood the cabin and turned away, unquote. And what's stuck with me all, all these years about that story is not just the horrific poverty that she was living through and the struggle of her life, but how much she wanted to cling to her place, her mm. freedom, you know, her, like that was, it, it may have been a rag covered mattress and it may have been a stove that was stitched together it was home. You know, by wire, but it was home. It was hers. She didn't want to go to the poor house and the poor houses more or less do not exist anymore. And so this is the second thing I wanted to read to you, Congressman, your former, your former colleague, John Dingle, this, I, I interviewed him for this story. Oh, wow. And his father stood behind FDR when he signed the Social Security Act into, wow. into law. And he said, uh, this is one of the things of which my dad was very proud. It closed 1,100 old folks' homes in New York, 1,100. And that was just one example, but it tells you what it did all over the country, Dingle, Dingle told me. And he said before Social Security, what he remembered was that, quote, everybody and his second cousin piled in with their families. I had relatives that came to stay with my dad and mom. I didn't even know were relatives. To tell you the truth, I'm not sure they are. And my <laughs> granddad, on dad's side, who threw dad out of the house, came to live with dad. Dad was the only one of his kids who'd take care of him. He was, quite frankly, the only one who could afford to do so because Pop was making a fairly decent living during the war, but he was supporting a whole tribe of Dingles and Selmerses and a whole bunch of others who had other Polish names but were related. And so those were the two ways that the elderly survived. They either were pushed into a poor house or they piled in with family who was on the one hand happy to help as much as they could, but on the other hand makes for an awfully uh, difficult living situation. And so you know, we all have stories in our lives about Social Security and uh, Congressman. I'm curious what what yours are, what what your connection to the program has been. <clears throat> well, first and foremost, what a uh, compelling uh, story about Winnie, and I I think also there and what struck me as you were speaking is the enormous pride uh, that people had, and you know, as you pointed out, be it ever so humble, there was no place. Uh, like her home, making it on her own. And I think this is important to the concept of social security, uh, often referred to by our erstwhile colleagues on the other side as an entitlement. The brilliance of Roosevelt was that this is not an entitlement. Uh, this is not being forced to go into an almshouse this is your contribution. And I tell seniors and everyone everywhere I go, look, you know, and you know how you know this is true? Just look at your pay stub. 
it says FICA, Federal Insurance Contribution. Who's yours? This is not an entitlement. There, it is the most efficient insurance plan. And I live in an insurance capital of the world. The most efficient insurance program in the world is Social Security. It has a 99% loss ratio. Any insurance company would die to have a loss ratio of 99%, meaning that it's the cost to run Social Security, and government officials don't get enough credit for this, is 1%. It is the most economical, the most efficient government program and as you pointed out at the outset of the show, Ryan, it's, uh, it's kept seniors out of poverty. It has also kept children out of poverty. And veterans rely more on it, especially disabled veterans, than they do on the VA. So, and it all comes down to responsibility and accountability. You mentioned Social Security stories. The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which has cognizance over this, is Rich Neal. Rich Neal lost his mother, his father, his grandmother, who was then bringing his family up on Social Security, and then his grandmother passed. Both uh, Tom Reed and uh, Tom Rice also lost a parent and on the committee and were raised on Social Security. We have five million fellow Americans who live and receive checks below the poverty level. So people who have paid into a system all their lives, but for the negligence of Congress, receive a below poverty level check from the wealthiest nation in the world at a time in our history where the wealth differential is the greatest it's ever been. And this is something that Joe Biden cannot do with an executive order nor that the Supreme Court is going to take up anytime soon. This is the responsibility of the United States Congress. Uh, Congress has kicked the can down the road too many times. The last president to do something with Congress with this was Ronald Reagan. But what they did is put in place, they made Social Security more solvent, but what they did is put it in place, a series of cuts. Now I say series of cuts. What do I mean by that? They raise the age and the, they use this very simplistically saying, well, people are living longer. So therefore we should raise the age for every year you raise the age. It's a 7% cut in benefits. The last of which just went into effect this January from a bill that was passed in 1983. So 39 years ago, we're still seeing the effects of even though it improved the solvency of Social Security, not a single benefit was enhanced. And by raising the age, your benefit was cut by 7%. Uh, Congressman, you know, you are the chair of the Social Security Subcommittee on, on Ways and Means. Yep. I, I assume that that did not happen by accident. <laughs> this is something that you were personally wanting to do, something you personally cared about. And I think for most people, they understand politics through stories. And I'm wondering if there are any 
stories from your life about how Social Security has touched your family or simply what you've encountered in your political career, like things that you really remember? Uh, growing up in a, a blue-collar industrial town, you get to see firsthand what poverty is about and um, also how people struggle and why uh, programs like Social Security are so vitally important. It's in so many cases, and for so many Americans, the only retirement that they have. And in the case of millennials, as we project out into the future, a generation of people who are earning less money than their uh, parents did are not in a position to buy a house or accumulate assets the way their parents were and are saddled with enormous college debt and are wondering, will Social Security be there for us? And um, I always say, yes, it will. A few things have changed over the last 50 years in terms of the cost of living and adjustments that people have had to make. But clearly, uh, Social Security has not kept pace with that. And you have more than, more than 200 co-sponsors on your bill. Mm -hmm. Is that right? How, cl how close are you to 218? Uh, we're at 206 right now. So uh, but if I do the, the math right on, on that, that's 12 people away. And so your bill has also changed recently. A, a previous bill of yours had right. basically permanently expanded social yeah. security payments so that, you know, people, you know, everybody was getting, I guess you can describe how it worked progressively for the richest recipients, but right. uh, everybody in particular at the lower end to the, to the middle end were getting an expansion and it was going to be permanent. But now, you know, President Biden has, you know, he campaigned on what has been become popular among Democrats, which is to say there will be no tax increases on anybody making more than X. And for for the X for Biden, it was $400,000, which is, you know, sounds nice, it, but it also does crimp the ability to to fund a universal project like this in, in perpetuity. So now, as I understand it, your new, uh, your new proposal extends it for five years. And then what would you would come back to the drawing board after that? Well, you wouldn't have to go back to the drawing board. What it would do, and, and I think uh, rightfully so, it would put pressure on Congress to act. And it would also make all the recipients and all the benefactors, the 65 million people who will benefit from this, aware that something has been done with regard to Social Security. And it, why it's so strongly opposed by Republicans has been because once that benefit is implemented, it would be extraordinarily hard to take off. And again, the emphasis here would be on Congress's responsibility to vote. President Biden, when he campaigned, you know, campaigned, and I thought he used a, a very telling term when he said Social Security is a sacred trust. That's what the American people believe. And he articulated that. And he also then further added that he had other ideas that he wanted to see included in his proposal, including 
the repeal of WEP and GPO, which are governmental programs that prevented states and municipalities that had special pension plans from uh, getting Social Security uh, benefits. Bottom line is, is this. In so many areas, it's unfair. But it's great that this is all now uh, come together with the, uh, with the president saying, uh, as you point out, however limited the constraint of lifting the cap on people over 400,000, and even though you're right, uh, progressively, they will still receive a benefit, but far less of a benefit than someone under 50,000. You know, there's some 120 plus groups from the Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, Social Security Works, the NAACP, the National Organization of Women, AFG, the American Federation of Teachers. You get the picture and the drift here. They all emphasize one thing. Well, if we're limited in terms of what the president will sign into law, we would like to see the benefit enhancement, which has not been done in 50 years. And everybody has been falling behind, including fixing the COLA. So that actually reflects the real cost that seniors experience, a 2% across the board increase for everybody. But again, progressively designed. So people at the top end receive far less than people at the lower end of the spectrum. A tax cut for people that have to continue to work, you know, even when they're on Social Security. Uh, these are the these are the kinds of of benefits, and we've reached out to the other side. People say, "Well, how come you don't have bipartisan support?" The bill is bipartisan. Uh, the American people, uh, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, broadly accept this. The polling data on it is off the charts, and I believe. That once the bill is put on the on the floor, just like back in 1935, very rough going getting the bill out of committee. But once it got to the floor, all of a sudden there was Republican support for a bill. And why? I can remember Mark Meadows saying to me, that bill makes it to the floor. Said, uh, you're going to find a lot of Republicans are going to be voting for that bill because we know, as he did in rural North Carolina, that this is their lifeline. This is what they depend on. Mark Meadows told you that? Yep. Uh, Mark Meadows. Former Freedom Caucus turned White House chief, yep. turned Trump chief of staff. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of getting it out of committee, the, the kind of rumor around the House was that, that Pelosi didn't want to see this come out of committee. But as I've reported this out more, it seems more like it's one of her top lieutenants, Wendell Primus, who's concerned about it. Do you, do you know what his concerns are with the bill? Do you have any plans for, for working around that problem? Because he's not just any staffer, as you know. He's the guy that people kind of jokingly refer to him <laughs> as Speaker Wendell. It's very, he's a very bright and capable person, and he passionately cares about children. And he's, he's always made the point that, you know, we have to make sure that we're taking care of the children. My argument is that this does take care of the children. This is the number one anti-poverty program for children as well. And, uh, you know, and I think you're correct in terms of Wendell's concern uh, would be that, you know, there's only so much money to go around and we have only so many, so many expenditures, et cetera. 
I would add that this is an off-budget item that this will not raise, this will not add a single penny to the national debt, number one. And number two, yep, it's limited in terms of what we would have liked to do in the bill previous, which was uh, to make sure that it was solvent beyond 75 years and the benefits were all permanent. But this expands the benefits, gives us a solid cornerstone, and it cuts the shortfall of Social Security in half. Yes, it's a compromise based on, A, making sure we're getting the benefits where it's needed the most. Pramila Jayapal told me that at the Progressive Caucus, they raised this with uh, Speaker Pelosi, and she said, yes, that it's time that we looked at Social Security. She says, there are bills out there. I'm familiar with Mr. Larson's bills. And you know, there are bills in the Senate too. And uh, Bernie Sanders has a good bill. Elizabeth Warren has a bill. The, uh, the Republicans have, I don't know if they've actually have a bill in the Senate, but they've discussed an idea of a study, you know, which that doesn't help anyone who's currently dealing with COVID and currently oh, concerned about inflation and is currently living on a fixed income. 
ended up being their biggest champions, most notably Dwight David Eisenhower. And you know the history behind Social Security, but he knew the history behind the sacrifice that the men and women who served under him in, the, in World War II had gone through and what they would need when they came back. And there's a very, in one of his biographies, it talks about a letter from his brother saying, you've changed your view on Social Security. He says, anyone who's seen what Americans endure up front understands that this is an essential program for the American people and essential for our entrepreneurial system of governance. And anyone who doesn't recognize this is a fool. And Eisenhower expanded the program. Richard Nixon was the last person to expand the program, a Republican president. And as we mentioned before, Ronald Reagan, who was virile in his uh, attacks against Social Security, ultimately, and God rest his soul, primarily because of Bob Dole, uh, said, no, this is this is a cornerstone that, you know, so many Americans depend on and believe in. As a party, we have to make sure that we're out front in favor of this. And they did pass it. Of course, Tip was the Speaker of the House. And uh, but what the compromise was then is they extended the solvency for a long period of time, but they did it through cuts. The program was not enhanced in 1983. And the cuts came by raising the age in steps, the last of which took place this January. So let's say you could get it through the, the House this term. Have you talked to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer about whether he thinks that this is worth a fight? I mean, obviously, Social Security is carved out of reconciliation. It's, it's specifically written in there, interestingly, that you cannot do social security changes through reconciliation. I think that was because, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Bob Byrd, who helped write those reconciliation rules, didn't want to see it get cut through reconciliation. Well, you know, uh, you're absolutely correct. And and nobody would ever argue about Byrd's great parliamentary capability. The question remains, though, and as you point out, supposedly it was put in there, Social Security and Medicare were put in and excluded from reconciliation to protect them, or one could also argue to prevent them from happening when you have simple majorities. And this raises a whole issue that why I think Social Security is one of the best things that should be front and center because it impacts America. It's broadly understood and simple, and they all understand it. And I think when you have a vote like that before you, it places a great deal of responsibility and pressure. It's why I think a Mark Meadows would recognize that, hey, in rural North Carolina, our seniors understand the value and importance of, of Social Security. And I think, uh, you know, certainly Chuck Schumer knows politics as well as, uh, as anyone And I think this would be a valuable tool on several fronts. Number one, first and foremost, because the benefit is needed, it's broadly understood, and it would impact 65 million Americans. And then when you look at also, you know, if Black Lives really matter, who are the group that's impacted the most? Who are of those 5 million fellow Americans who live 
in poverty, of the more than 3 million who have paid into a system all their lives and still get a below poverty level check, who are they? They are the winnies you were talking about before. It's primarily women and specifically women of color and black males. John Lewis said, this is the next civil rights issue because of the discrimination unintended or or otherwise that has existed because of either jobs that people were doing at the time and the menial nature of those jobs and the lack of a COLA or a wage adjustment by the government as we're going forward so that people were anchored at the bottom. So no matter how well the economy was doing, Kennedy's phrase that a rising tide will lift all boats couldn't happen if you're permanently anchored to the bottom in poverty. So speaking of politics, while we've got you, I want to ask you a midterm question. You're you're facing a primary challenge for the first time in uh, is it, when was the last time you had a serious primary challenge? When I ran for the seat the first time, it was a five-way, highly contested uh, primary. And it seems like this is a phenomenon that's hitting districts all over the country. These very credible primary challenges, this is from a young progressive named Wad Herezi, and he seems to be running a, you know, a pretty serious campaign. He's been hitting you over what political uh, corporate PAC contributions and mm-hmm. generally making the argument uh, for generational change. What does the race uh, look like from your perspective? And, you know, wh- what is it, what is it like to not have had a challenge for so long? And do you think that people like yourself or others are going to be caught off guard by, by some of this, or did AOC coming in a couple of years ago, get people who'd been facing comfortable reelections to say, Oh, I guess I might actually get challenged pretty soon. Well, I think it's, uh, there's a number of good points there. First and foremost, anyone ought to be able to run for, for public office at any time, no matter who, what, where, or why. But they also have to demonstrate that, you know, they have the credentials and the wherewithal to do that. And I think if you're doing your job in your district and you're out there meeting your constituency and working on their behalf. As I said at the beginning, this job at the end of the day is about helping people. And if you've got a reputation for helping people, you know, you don't, there's not an awful lot of, you know, there's not a lot of news about constituent service and what you do on a daily basis. So I'm, I'm very comfortable. We certainly are taking nothing for granted in terms of a race. And I think that's the one of the lessons, whether you're talking about Joe Crowley or Mike Capuano, two members of Congress that I served with. So you take nothing for granted, but if you're doing your job and continuing to represent the people and their concerns, the best remedy for that is to roll up those sleeves, lean in, and I think what it's done for me has got me even a little bit more enthusiastic about uh, making sure that we accomplish those goals and we're getting that message out. Like on the one hand, I do truly believe that Social Security is, you know, a centuries-long inspor- inspiring saga. But of course, it is also a matter of very straightforward dollars and cents, and people care about that part as well. And I would just like to give you the opportunity to maybe go through like the top three, top four aspects of this bill, like what this means in terms of money. And my understanding from reading the bill is that, you know, 
Number one, every single social security beneficiary would get an extra $30 a month. So an extra $360 a year, which is uh, not nothing. And so what are the things that you see as most important in, in terms of like just those like basic dollars and cents issues? Well, I do think that it's a uh, basic dollar and cents issue, uh, number number one. And I I would add that I think what we do is make sure that we address it. When you haven't had a program adjusted in more than 50 years, then, you know, there's a wide range of improvement. And that improvement uh, starts with a 2% across the board increase. So, for example, you can have people that were currently making around at the lower end of the scale are receiving $11,900 in today's terms, but passage of this bill would mean that they've received 15000 Nobody's going to get wealthy off of Social Security. People aren't going out and um, re-upping their stock options uh, because with Social Security. They're, they're getting basic subsistence. And w- one thing I think people would be particularly interested in right now is that one of the most important, most significant aspects of Social Security for people, like in a year like the last one, is that it does have an automatic adjustment for inflation. So prices have gone up, but this month, or rather last month, January, Social Security benefits went up to to match it. And so uh, it might be interesting for people to know about the bill's change to the way that adjustment is calculated because – you know, you, I'm, I'm sure you know the the nitty gritty wonky details. I'll just say that the costs for people who are over 65 are, are somewhat different than the costs for people who are under 65, and so there may need to be a, another way to calibrate the inflation adjustment so that people would actually uh, get a higher cost of living adjustment every year. Yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Let me let me start with the uh, uh, with the cola and. Uh, for a number of years, the AARP has been suggesting that we ought to have uh, something called CPIE. CPI, as you know, standing for Consumer Price Index, and E referring to the elderly. By that, what they've done is they devise something so that the actual cost that the elderly incur is factored in and not the broader CPI. Now, here's the great irony. This year, because of COVID, there was one of the largest increases in COLA in recent memory. So what we did with the legislation is make sure we adopted it to be flexible and say that it will reflect either of the two, whichever is the greater. So in this instance, for example, CPIE may not have hmm. CPIE may not have gotten as much money in the wallets of people during this COVID. A pandemic. But in our legislation, it would be either or whichever is the greater amount. But consistently over year in, year out, CPIE and what the AARP has been supporting would be a far better way to go as well. And as we were saying previously also about the uh, taking the new floor for Social Security and uh, saying that the new floor will be developed by the government to reflect 125% of the poverty rate. And what that means, 
quite frankly, is this. For so many Americans who have worked all their lives, you know, more than 3 million, and paid into a system, they receive a below poverty level check. And under our bill, what would happen is that an individual would go from, uh, who gets a yearly benefit now of around, let's say, 11200 under the current formula, under our bill, there would be a 42% increase and they would be making, getting 15900 Now, nobody's going to get wealthy on 15900 but they're not living in poverty anymore. And that's an enormous help to all of them. And that's why we've done some of those specific increases. Raising the floor to 125% of poverty is just common sense, and so is, and so is a COLA that needs to reflect what everybody is going through. And I think uh, another particularly important aspect of your bill that, that caught my eye is that people know, I believe, that their Social Security benefits are based on their income during years where they were participating in the formal workforce. But there are a lot of people who work very, very hard who are not in the formal workforce because they are taking care of children. Exactly. Uh, they're taking care of their older relatives. And I think anybody who's ever done that knows that that actually is very real, very hard work. And so can you tell us a little bit uh, just about what the bill does to address that? Sure. Well, we have uh, we provide caregiver credits to ensure that people, again, mostly women, are not penalized in retirement for taking time out of the workforce to care for children and their other dependents. I mean, this again, we feel that this is common sense. This is something that President Biden was uh, arguing for as well, as has Brad Schneider and a number of people on our on the subcommittee. But what it does is provide earning an earnings credit for up to five years for those who take time out of the workforce to care for a dependent child, uh, age 12, or a dependent relative. The maximum wage credits are up to half the average national wage, which would have a 28300 would be 28300 for 2020, and also making those for those who first become eligible for benefits in 2023-27. These are common sense, practical, straightforward things that need to be addressed. And repealing WEP and GPO, that's the windfall elimination provision and government provision offset, these are these are items that penalize people unfairly. And by eliminating them, school teachers policemen, firefighters, municipal employees are now, and especially their spouses, are going to be able to get benefits that they've been denied under the current system. Uh, It only happens when people start talking it up and, and focusing on it in this way. The fierce urgency, as Martin Luther King would say, the fierce urgency of now has been is staring us right in the face with this COVID pandemic that has only underscored what's going on in seniors' lives and those very kitchen table discussions that they're having, wondering if they can make ends meet, wondering what the future holds for them, and wondering whether or not their government is going to step up and do the right thing here and make an adjustment they haven't done in more than 50 years. This is blatant congressional neglect and long overdue. And I'm glad that progressives all across this nation are supporting this. And this is what we're going to continue to fight for till we get a vote 
and we get it passed and it's signed into law. Well, con- Congressman, thank you for for joining us. And uh, b- before I leave, I was just thinking about our the, the exchange about the the insurgent candidate. Have, are you still? And it's just struck. Are you still taking corporate PAC money? Have you considered joining the group? Your your colleagues who have said, you know what, we're in a new era. We're not. I'm not. Do- I'm not doing this anymore. You know, uh, I've you know for years I've lived in a in a community. And the question has always been raised, even back when I was Senate president in the state of Connecticut, do you take corporate money? These are the people that I work with and grew up with. Do you take defense contractor money? My father worked at Pratt Whitney all of his life. My mother worked there during the the Second World War. Yes, I have taken that money. But the thing is, when you take that money, am I signing on to their agenda? No. They're signing on to my agenda. And I think that that point isn't made often enough. And, you know, whether I live in an insurance capital of the world, but I've always been a supporter of the public option. And, you know, these are these are people, family and friends, et cetera, that I've known all of my all of my life, et cetera. And, and, And I represent them. And. We're limited in terms of what we can take, and I think that's appropriate. But if you you search my record, I'm sure you'll find that I have one of the most progressive voting records in the United States, it's Congress, and uh, that's how I'll continue to uh, comport myself, that it's my agenda that people are buying into, and that agenda includes Social Security and its passage. Well, Congressman, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll, we'll be looking forward to seeing what happens with this bill. Thank you. Thank, thank you guys again. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Sharif Youssef. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.